Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On this podcast, you will hear inspiring testimonies, learn about messianic apologetics, and discover God's plan for Israel and you. Wherever you're listening, we hope you lean in, listen closely, and be blessed. Jesus the Nazarene, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24. The apostle Peter spoke these words to the thousands of Jewish people who flocked to Jerusalem for Pentecost, or Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. He speaks of Yeshua being nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. In the very same sentence, however, Peter says Jesus died according to God's own predetermined plan. Well, which is it? These verses illustrate just one example of several passages in scripture that may sound paradoxical. Nothing can happen outside of God's sovereignty, yet humans are accountable for our actions. The complex question of free will arises in our daily lives as well. For example, is a person's success in their field the fruit of hard work? Or did God provide opportunities for them to prosper? If a student is accepted at the college of their choice, is it because their transcript and essay won over the recruiters? Or is it because God opened the door? Does it have to be one or the other? Or might it not be both? Here to help us wrestle with these tough questions, both in the Bible and in the world today, is Dr. Gregory Haig. Dr. Haig is the Vice President and Program Director of the Charles L. Feinberg Center for Messianic Jewish Studies. He has a Master of Theology degree from Dallas Theological Seminary and a PhD in Hebrew and Judaic Studies from New York University. Dr. Haig, Greg, welcome to Our Hope. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. And you are a first-time guest, so we have to ask you, you're very busy. You do the Feinberg program, which is our seminary program in Brooklyn, and you're a professor, and I bet you write a lot. So what do you do for fun? What do you do in your spare time? What is that word? Fun? fun? I, <laughs> no, that means, <laughs> no, I do uh, have a wonderful uh, life because I have six grandchildren, and uh, we spend a good bit of our time with them. So what do I do for fun? It's spending time with my family whenever possible. Uh, my wife likes to say that grandparenting uh, is really not babysitting, it's uh, discipling. And we mm. take that very seriously. We want to pass on the baton to uh, our family. So that's an important part of the things. Um, I am hopefully working on a commentary on the pastoral epistles that will be uh, coming out in a year or so. Uh, I spend a lot of uh, time in preparation for the courses, uh, grabbing the the opportunity to study the way a professor should study, that is to read widely in the disciplines that I teach in, such as uh, hermeneutics and historical theology and the Greek language. The other thing that I do, well, it's just a personal interest of mine. I was always interested in Stoic philosophy, mm -hmm. and I like to study the, the comparisons between Stoic philosophy and Christian thought uh, in the same way that I studied the comparison between Mishnaic thought 
and the New Testament in my um, uh, research in education. So those are some of the things that that I, I do to keep busy. That is awesome. And I love that you have a background in hermeneutics because that is absolutely essential for today's episode. So let's jump into this conversation. It's a very hotly debated topic within our faith. It's been talked about for like 2,000 years. And like you said before, it's going to be talked about in the future. So what do we mean when we say God is sovereign? Well, I I should probably uh, make a bit of a disclaimer at the beginning of our discussion because much of what I say has to do with uh, uh, what I've been thinking about for years and years. I've been doing this for over 50 years now, and it's the constant question that comes up. It's not going to be resolved before the Lord returns. And and even then, he might want us to remain a a little bit involved in the mystery of it all. Mm. Uh, But I think uh, it's often been said that to, to try to come to grips with this topic is like unscrewing the inscrutable, uh, the human responsibility and our uh, responsibility to uh, to do what God tells us to do, and yet understanding that there's a sovereign plan. So, um, yeah, I, I could, uh, let me say a few more things about this. Um, the thought of kingship helps me the most when I think about sovereignty. Mm. Uh, it's that um, there's an emphasis on the power or the rule or the reign or the realm of the ruler. Uh, But the rule or the role, I should say, of the subjects is also extremely important. God has uh, absolute power to do whatever he wants to do, but we human beings must submit to that authority. So it's both sides of the same coin. Uh, God can force anything to happen, uh, even our obedience. I think he could make us do whatever he wants done. However, there seems to be a choice made by subjects. We decide to submit or rebel. So I like to put it this way. God is not a dictator king Mm. who forces his will on his creation. God is certainly not an absent king who abdicated his throne and turned it over to chance. And God is not a weak king who cannot intervene and control when necessary. So uh, he has a plan, and that plan is uh, most often beyond the grasp of our puny minds. And once we come to grips with that fact, uh, then we can make a bit of progress in seeing both sides of the same coin in the scriptures. I have a few more things to say about sovereignty, if you'd like. Um, For sure. I jotted down some notes knowing that I was going to be talking about this. Oh, yeah. You've got plethora of uh, scripture that uh, presents God as the absolute sovereign. Uh, In Acts 15, it says, the Lord who makes these things known from long ago, and from long ago means Mm. from eternity. And Ephesians 1 is used most often when it talks about his purpose in our lives. It says, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, to work all things after the counsel of his will. So purpose and will and his ownership of those is really important. Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. And I love Proverbs 16, which says the Lord has made everything for his own purpose. Note the word purpose again, Mm. even the wicked for the day of evil. That's a challenging thought. Oh, yes. 
And our favorite verse, of course, for all Christians that I know, and we'll maybe come back to this a little bit later in the podcast, but Romans 8, 28 uh, says that we know, well, we're, we're confident, we know uh, that to those who love God, he works all things for good. Uh, to those who are chosen mm. or elected or called according to his purpose. So we we deal with the sovereign God who does what he wants to do. And we can't uh, we can't buck that authority. He is the potter, we're the clay. He can do whatever he wants to with his creation. So um I don't know those are some thoughts about the meaning of sovereignty and it plays out throughout the Bible. Uh, I often ask my students to do a personal word study and and find just by concordance work uh, mm-hmm. find all the passages that they can that relate to the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty, and then find another list that re- reflects the responsibility of man to make right decisions. And you're going to find that uh, th- there are just dozens and dozens of dozens of clear statements that do this. And we could go through all the verses today, but I know mm-hmm. you don't have time uh, to do that. Ultimately, God is in complete control. He might choose to let certain things happen mm-hmm. according to uh, natural laws that he's already established. Uh, so we have the directive will and we have the permissive will of God. He often intervenes, but very often he, more often probably, he allows things to happen according to what he's already put in place. I like the analogy that you made of God being a king. I've never heard anyone use that in the discussion of free will versus sovereignty. Um mm-hmm. And I think that's a great way to put it. God is ultimately the one who rules over everything, um, but we are still his subjects and we still have a choice to make in the matter as far as whether or not we're going to abide by his rule and follow that's his right. ways or if we're going to choose our own ways. Mm-hmm. One thing I've yeah. struggled with, um, especially this year, is just the idea of the fact that we live in a fallen world where evil still happens, even if we follow Jesus, and that it's going to rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous, and the sun's going to shine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And there are days where, you know, the the thought that God is in control doesn't necessarily bring me as much comfort as I want it to, because I know that that does not guarantee that everything is going to go perfectly. And so, how can evil occur in spite of God's sovereignty? Well, um, again, people have tried to answer the problem of evil in philosophical circles for uh, uh, centuries. So I doubt that we'll resolve the issue today. Uh, but uh, I, I think we we have to allow for the fact that God, uh, if God is the creator, and we assume that he is, right? But if he if he's the creator of all things, he must have created the the possibility of evil. Uh, he's the, if he is the ultimate cause, the first cause of all things, uh, uh, then he is God. If not, he would not be God. So he either he either directs or he allows everything to occur. And uh, we like to call him the first cause, and. Uh, He's the only one who uh, is responsible for all that exists. And one of the things that exists, according to Isaiah 45, 7, is God states that he um, has created calamity 
it's the word ra in Hebrew. Mm. It may be translated evil. The, the scholars who treat this issue sometimes will, they want to, to get God off the hook. It's called theodicy. Mm. And they're trying to say that, well, God could not have been the one who created the possibility of evil. I just can't see that in the scripture. So you're asking the question, how can evil occur? It occurs because he made it possible. He's the ultimate cause or the creator of potential evil. But he's never the blameworthy cause. And that's what we try to instill in our students mm. is that you can't blame God for any of the evil. Evil requires the volition of man, uh, certainly in the human interaction with one another. I like to quote uh, Charles Ryrie, who said, man was created with genuine freedom, but the exercise of that freedom in rebellion against God introduced sin into the human race. So if it weren't for man's decision, man's volition, then evil would not be part of our existence. So God was the designer of the plan. He was not involved in the commission of the evil, uh, either on the part of Satan originally or uh, uh, Adam. So even though God hates sin for reasons that are not revealed to us, it's present by his permission. And so sin must be within God's eternal plan or God would not be eternal. Uh, so in some way, he is the author uh, of this possibility. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. I don't know of any <laughs> other way to explain it. Uh, it. It's here because he has ordained that it be part of of our existence. And think about the response that we would have in obedience to him, how much praise and glory and satisfaction it brings to him mm -hmm. when we make the right choices in our own volition. That's that's mind-blowing to think about, you know, the fact that when we actually act in accordance with his plan, I mean, that's like the ultimate, like, best scenario possible. Um, as you were speaking... I remembered the story of Joseph in, in Genesis. And, you know, briefly, we know that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob and his brothers were envious of him. And so they threw him in a pit. And then when they took him out of the pit, they sold him to um, slavery in Egypt. And he went on to become the second most powerful person in Egypt. And uh, there was a drought you know, in, in that part of the world. And then his brothers ended up coming to Egypt uh, for food and they see Joseph and they don't recognize him. But then eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so as you were talking, I remember the fact that, you know, ultimately, I, I the way I've seen it, Greg, is that God knows what we're going to do before we do it. And so he knows how to weave it into his epic grand story of him accomplishing his purposes and his will. And so ultimately, even when bad things happen and God does not condone the evil that happens, it was not, God did not condone or, or like the fact that Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. But God knew that they were going to do that, and he knew, okay, I can use this. Well, he already knew it was going to happen, but he knew how to use it for good. Um, does that make sense? Am I on the right path it makes, here? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It, it reflects 
it ref, in my view, it, it reflects a, a perfect understanding of Romans 8.28, which we may get to a little bit later. But mm. Romans 8.28, it doesn't say that God is the author of bad things that yeah. happen. It says that he takes those things, what all, whatever the event is, and he makes something good out of it. The problem is our definition of good and bad. Yeah. In our puny minds, we cannot uh, come to a mm-hmm. proper definition. He knows what's good and we don't. We think uh, of the bad things and he may think of them as good in his eternal plan. And that gives us um, a reason for living and going through the pain that we go through. I mean, just think of Joseph. He was able to look to the sovereign God. And the thing that I wanted to point out, too, is it always helps me to think in terms of uh, father, son, mm-hmm. uh, or family relations. What brings most joy to me? What makes me smile the most or or did when my 50-year-old sons were, mm-hmm. were little? Uh, it was when they uh, responded willingly yeah. and joyfully to what we asked them to do. And then when they didn't, I still love them. Mm-hmm. I still corrected them. And I looked for the time when they would say they were sorry. They would repent, if you will, and come and sit on my lap and we would uh, hug a lot. Mm. Yeah. I think God has mm-hmm. the same attitude toward us. Yeah, I'm still looking to, uh, I'm still working toward a place of seeing God that way myself. Now we're going to look at the other side of the coin here. We're going to look at free will, our ability to choose. Greg, how would you define free will, and do you think that we have it? I do think we have it, but I have to couch it in terms of what we just discussed. Uh, We have a free will, but the statement has to be qualified by the overarching existence of a sovereign decree. Hmm. And that sovereign decree is over everything. Otherwise, God is not God. We can't understand it. Uh, It's in a different uh, uh, upper story, if you will, and we're living in the lower story. It's positional truth, maybe, and we're living in the experiential truth. Uh, but within the decree, God has allowed human choice or free will. So we make choices, and we can't say when we fail to make the right choice that the devil made me do it, yeah. which is often the case. It's an excuse. I just made a mistake. Uh, no, uh, we, we, we were allowed to make a choice, and it was a bad one. Uh, we can see this in the in the experience of the psalmist. Uh, Psalm one nineteen says this, uh, verse sixty seven. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. The psalmist says, but now I keep thy word. Now, what did he mean by that? I think when he says uh, um, he he extols the goodness of God after being corrected, he went astray, but now he keeps the word. Mm. So God was far from passive toward the psalmist's wanderings, and he brought events to bear to influence him toward obedience. So that's what discipline is all about by God. It's what the Holy Spirit does when he convicts us of sin. It's what the Father does when he he, uh, prompts us to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Hebrews 12 says that the purpose of God's discipline is to share in his holiness And while it's painful at times, the intent of discipline is to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's to cause us to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I've gone through times in my life when I sensed that God was really um, trying to get my attention. I was just not walking with him the way he wanted me. 
So a little Pachin that took us and got mm -hmm. my attention and it made me want to uh, serve him and turn back toward him instead of away from him. Uh, so the whole uh, concept of discipline in the Christian life is part of the free will discussion. He moves toward the believer so that the choices become right choices. And um, rather than resisting God, we, uh, we welcome it. We are thankful. Another thing I would say about this um, is that we could look at the convincing work of the Spirit in a way that is, uh, it makes us want to recoil. We don't want to be reminded of our sins, either by mm -hmm. people around us that God uses or by the inner uh, witness of the Spirit in our lives. But when we read the Word of God, we find um, urgings from God commanding us uh, to obedience. He's uh, encouraging us to actions that are within his will. He doesn't suppress our will, but neither does he uh, take a passive stance toward our will. He doesn't want us to make choices that are contrary to his, but he allows us mm -hmm. to do uh, whatever we decide to do within his sovereign will. It's complicated, I know. It's hard to figure out, but... Uh, Surely the, 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 uh, the, the Spirit is convicting us as well as the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that demands a response. We need to respond with submission to his, his Lordship in our lives. So do we have free will? Yes and no. Greg. Yeah, it is a very complicated thing to look at. And I just remembered an analogy one of my friends gave me uh, years ago. I was um, I was praying about whether or not I should date someone. And I was really wrestling with this. The guy was a believer, but I was like, I don't know if it's God's will or if it's not God's will. And she said, you know, when she was younger, when her dad took her to the playground, um, she didn't have to ask her dad, can I go on the slide or can I go on the swings? Like she had the freedom to roam that playground because it was designated for her to move about freely. But if mm -hmm. she went beyond the the boundaries of the playground, if she went to the street, then her dad would say, no, I didn't say you could go over there, come back into the playground. And so would you say, Greg, that God kind of gives us this, I'd hate to use the word box, but just these parameters to work within where we have freedom to choose this or that. And it's not necessarily, a, you know, there's no divine or you know, eternal implications to it. If I want to go to the diner and if I want to drink Pepsi or if I want to drink Coke, you know, do I have the freedom to make those kinds of decisions? Or would you say that those are somehow also integrated into God's will? Uh, yes, integrated into God's will to be sure, but plenty of room for decision-making. Uh, so this is really part of the application of the whole doctrine as uh, his will relates to uh, our will. Um, years ago, a couple of friends of mine uh, at Dallas Seminary wrote a book called Decision-Making and the Will of God. It was mm -hmm. Gary Friesen and Robin Maxson. And they stressed something that 
people had not been stressing in the past. They stressed the, that the volition we have in making decisions is there's a lot of latitude there. In other words, he offers us many choices in life. Mm. And uh, sometimes we're so afraid that we're not going to hit the center of God's will that we don't move forward. Yeah. We're immobilized. We're frozen. We're static. We're indecisive because uh, we're looking for the center of God's will, which is a good thing. But they put forth the idea that it seems that we've got uh, a lot of decisions that we can make, like the child in the playground. Mm -hmm. um, see, a lot of things that would be within his moral will. Yeah. He states that very clearly. And then the the outworking of uh, of uh, of the will, our will for our lives or his will for our lives becomes much more um Oh, uh, I'm more free. There's there's more freedom to make choices. So I think if you are maintaining the moral will, then uh, there are several doors that you might go through that would be perfectly all right with God. Uh, you could play on any one of those uh, um, uh, items in, in the um, playground. Uh, you could choose any way you want to to get home from work. Um you, you can choose different jobs that still would be within his will. So from the outside, we look at opportunities and we walk through them, even in marriage. And then we look back and we say, that was the will of God. Hmm. He did direct me because I was moving in the center of his will, or I was moving in his moral will. I know that's kind of the way I look at it. So often we're unhappy about our lot in life. And reasonably so, because we're humans living in a fallen world. Yeah. I like to quote from um, J.B. Phillips. Uh, Linda and I like to use it a lot in counseling. It says this, those who are disappointed with God have forgotten the terms on which we inhabit the planet. Mm. Namely, he is sovereign. He's God and I'm not. And so we're still living in a fallen world. And yet we have this wonderful freedom to live joyfully making decisions that uh, um, are sometimes based on what, simply what we what we want to do, what is our desire to do. As long as we're uh, walking with him, we can do that. So on the flip side of that, Greg, what about when we make a mistake? Would you say that God also uses our mistakes for good? Um, I think specifically of, you know, when a believer gets divorced, for example, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, no, I made one bad mistake or I took a wrong turn in life. I've ruined God's plan for my life and this is it, you know. And so is there redemptive qualities even after we make a mistake, even after we take a wrong turn and we turn back to God or, you know, we we continue to live for him despite the circumstances that we're in? Can God still redeem those situations and does God still use them? I hope so. Otherwise, I'm in a world of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And most of us are because we do fail. Uh, we sin. We we do not choose the best for us. We do make mistakes. And I think the answer is yes. And it's based upon that, that wonderful single. I hate to use just one single verse to mm -hmm. um, to draw upon, but it, it teaches me that God is in the redemptive business He's trying to uh, make good what is bad. 
and he has uh, he solved the, the the sin problem, the horrible, horrible sin problem, the obscene sin problem in which his creation has rebelled against him in all manner of ways. Mm. Uh, but Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, that's an underlying principle. So if you apply that to our lives and the mistakes we made, I think uh, it's the whole concept of Christian sin, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting topic. Uh, how does one get back into the good graces of God and the community when sin has occurred? The first thing, I think, is to understand Romans 8, 28 properly. Um, it's the most comforting verse with regard to human responsibility and God's sovereignty that I know. And um, uh, I, uh, I had a pastor one time. He was the most important individual in my life who led me into Bible teaching and off to seminary and just a wonderful man. He did a lot of writing and recording, and his name was Chet McCauley from Beth Haven Church in Kansas City. Mm. And uh, if we have time, I can read just a, a paragraph or two of what he yeah. had to say. It just always has stuck with me. He says, God is the only source of absolute good. He, therefore, must be the definer of what good is. And this underscores a mistake that we all too often make. We select what we think is good and then we expect God to agree. We forget that we're sinners, and only the objective statements of Scripture can tell us what's good and what isn't. And in this passage, from the human side, Paul's looking at those who love God. Uh, that's an act of the will. And from the divine side, those same people are those who are called according to his purpose. And the word purpose is most important here because its meaning is very clear. It's an intelligent design. God's intelligent design is unfolded in the rest of the passage in 8, 9, and 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. Mm. Then he says the stress of the verb is the divine ability to take a multitude of events and blend them into something that may be called good in the fullest sense of the word. And all things means all things here. All of our failures, as well as all of our successes. Uh, he can somehow turn it into something valuable. Individually, maybe not so. Just one more thing that that uh, Chet had to say yes. is, as an illustration. He said, on the kitchen counter lies garlic, stick of butter, salt, pepper, flour. None of these alone would make a very pleasant meal, but imagine or can you imagine eating a stick of butter or a tablespoon of pepper? But you put the items in the hands of a good cook, and they'll mix and blend and cook and simmer and bake until a delectable product emerges. Mm. That's what Romans 8.28 is, is saying. Individually, horrible pain. Mm. But together, it's a, a delectable meal. He takes all of the events of life, those failures that Christians have, and he blends them into something very beautiful. If we understand this, Chet says, we will view all of the events of life in a unique way. His sovereign ability to do this becomes a source of stability and assurance no matter what they what may come our way. It doesn't mean that he overlooks our sins or will cancel the consequences of our actions. But the believer who doesn't really understand or believe this truth can only behold the unpleasant 
irksome, unhappy events of life and display all kinds of human viewpoint responses like uh, disappointment and regret and shame that destroy the possibility of Christ-likeness. If we are instructed in this, however, the same unpleasant events and disappointments behold the master's hand in of God in them. They're part of the good and gracious plan. Uh, yeah, it's that, uh, not just that quote, but those who take that stance about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're the, the ones who can function well. They're the ones who can cope with the realities of a fallen world. I'd like to think that, oh, maybe part of the time I'm one of those. I hope to one day be one of those. <laughs> uh, I think you are more than you know. Thank you. I'm working toward it. I'm working toward it. I mean, as you were talking, it reminded me of, I mean, I have seen this in my own life. I have to constantly remind myself of my my testimony because I was kicked out of my dad's church when I was 14. And then I, yes, it was very legalistic. And so um, I didn't do anything juicy. It was just a very legalistic environment. And then after that, I started attending another church and it was a whole new world for me because I was now seeing God as a more gracious person and starting to learn about the love of God and not just the wrath of God and the justice of God, but also his mercy. And I went to youth group and because I was removed from my dad's church, I ended up having the most fun teenage years you could possibly have going on youth ministry trips and getting involved in ministry, using my talents in different ways. And God worked it for good, you know, it, and it was mm -hmm. horrible circumstances. And thankfully today, my dad and I have a great relationship. We've reconciled and, and, you know, all is well. Um, but, you know, it's a very complicated thing when you're in the moment to be like, whoa, is God still in control? Why is this happening? Why would God allow this? Uh, but then sometimes years down the road, and sometimes it doesn't happen in this lifetime, sometimes in eternity, maybe you'll understand it. But thankfully, I was able to see it this side, um, that God God was going to use it for good, and he has. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, I hear this kind of uh, statement fairly regularly. And uh, it takes a lifetime of, uh, of living. It takes a long time to see the beginning from the end and and backwards. And if we live long enough, we can look back on all of our experiences and put them uh, in this rubric of saying, oh, there's pain, there's redemption, mm. there's dedication that comes from it. Uh, there's still puzzlement because we can't figure it all out. For sure. But there's there's a humility that comes by saying, I'm not God. And um, I don't like some of the things God allows or even does, but I'm not God. I don't want to forget, you know, the uh, terms on which I'm in uh, living on this planet. Earlier, Greg, you mentioned Romans 9 through, well, 8 through 11. And in light of that, and in light of especially of what's going on right now in the Middle East, um, Israel's war against Hamas, 
How do we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility in God's choosing of Israel? Well, you and I wouldn't be a part of the ministry that we are uh, if it, if we didn't have a pretty strong conviction about these things. And oh, yes. it doesn't take uh, much uh, um, oh, serious research uh, to come to the conclusion that God has a plan for Israel. I mean, all the way from the beginning, he chose Israel, beginning with Abraham, and then Isaac, not Ishmael, uh, Jacob, not Esau, Judah, not his brothers, and ultimately Yeshua as the chosen one, particularly chosen. And that uh, passage that we all love in Deuteronomy 7 says that the Lord did not set his love or choose you, speaking to Israel, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, because he loved you. Yeah. And he, yeah, and he kept the oath with which he sw swore to the Father. So his love, he, because he loved us, uh, loved them. So um, I, I look at it and, <clears throat> you know, there there are those, speaking about the, the problem of evil, uh, I believe that there is a, an, an angelic conflict going on. Um, how else can we explain the existence of evil? Uh, seems to be that there are two um, worlds um, in parallel trying to vie for authority. And the Bible presents it as a, a satanic kingdom versus a, a godly kingdom. And so we have uh, an enemy who has been trying to uh, thwart the plan of God, this ultimate sovereign plan of God, which includes the salvation of his people. So I think we've got to include in this discussion the fact that our great enemy consistently tried to eliminate uh, those who were predetermined, this predetermined plan of salvation by eliminating the people of Israel or the person of Yeshua. Uh, you can trace it through history. It's either Haman, Herod, or today's Hamas, Hezbollah, and even the Houthi. Satan has always wanted to prevent the birth, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And the nation of Israel is key to that. Mm -hmm. So the big picture to me has nothing to do with geopolitical struggles. Uh, given the, uh, uh, the situation that we see today, we, I think we have satanic, demonic forces at work. And uh, others have said it that's the way it was in previous generations. And, you know, I understand that. We could be saying that it's the end times now because of what we see. Uh, and we may be wrong. There may be another hundred years to go. But it, uh, to me, it points to the very real possibility that uh, the chosen nation of Israel, the chosen people of Israel, the ancient chosen people of Israel, uh, are under attack because of uh, the great uh, enemy that we have. So who would want to be Jewish? Who would want to side with the Jewish people? It's kind of like Revetevya in Fiddler on the Roof. Mm. Couldn't you have chosen somebody else? You know, who who, who would want to be uh, be called by God? And yet we, we've been called and we are, have been told by our Lord himself that we will suffer persecution as well. And I think a proper understanding of the Gospels is that the more we show our love for the, the chosen people, for the people of Israel today, the more likely uh, we will face opposition in the future. 
We'll be right back. Shalom, friends. This is Mitch Glazer, president of Chosen People Ministries. There is a growing movement of the Holy Spirit among second-generation young adults, and we have a great ministry to these folks. There are hundreds of them. There's a beautiful commercial center, two and a half times the size of what we have now that'll seat over 150 people. We have space for children's work. We have space for a cafe. And so pray over the center. We'd love to have you come on a Chosen People trip. But I know that you'll want to be involved in one way or another to help the gospel go out in power to Israel. To learn more about this new exciting project, visit chosenpeople.com slash Tel Aviv Center. That's chosenpeople.com slash Tel Aviv Center. Partner with us to bring the love of Yeshua to Israel today. Oh, yes. And I think, you know, as you were speaking, I remembered Corey Ten Boom and her family, what they did, you know, during the Holocaust. And I think there's a story where uh, somebody gave her family a Jewish baby to take care of. And they were warned that, you know, they could be put to death for hiding a Jewish baby. And Corey's father said that would be our greatest honor. And so mm-hmm. I just remembered that as you were speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this is unfortunately the the situation that we're in right now. Um, but I think knowing God's plan for Israel, his ultimate plan, this is this is one thing we have insight into when it comes to knowing God's will. Um, I think that is comforting during this season. Uh, it certainly is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how people can really um, focus on living their lives normally unless they sense that God is still in control, even though it doesn't seem like he is. When we look at Christian the church's history of anti-Semitism, and this is related. Um, I know a lot of times in the past, the church has blamed Jewish people for the death of Jesus. But we also know that in the Gospels, Jesus says that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down. And so going back to what we talked about in the introduction to this episode, how do we see human choices and God's sovereignty at play in the death of Yeshua? Well, you quoted the quintessential uh, verse concerning the uh, divine determination to carry out a plan of salvation and the human responsibility. Um, uh, The uh, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That sounds pretty sovereign to me. Mm. And then in the very next words, he says, you nailed to a cross and you did it by the hands of godless men. And you put him to death. So I, I, I think there's no way of figuring this out except to say that it's a both-and situation. God is sovereign over everything, mm. everything. Yet he allows for the sinfulness of man, uh, the uh, godless men who put to death the King of kings and Lord of lords who was perfect deity and perfect humanity in one person. How is this possible? Look, one of the things that I was going to, if I had a chance to conclude the discussion, uh, is that 
there is a mystery that we we can't begin to understand. We we cannot understand all of these things. But what I find fascinating, Nicole, and I, I'll bet you have too, mm-hmm. it's that the people that I have um, experienced in my life who are able to live the life and trust the Lord have got it figured out. And you know what they've gotten figured out? That they can't figure it out. <laughs> oh, man. And once we submit to, um, and it sounds like a cop out. I know it does. Certainly does to the the non-believing world. But there is a peace. There is a, a, a calm that comes to those of us who are willing to uh, trust him in the good and in the bad. Uh, in those various ingredients in our lives, the garlic and the pepper, as well as uh, the sugar that may be in the uh, in ingredients. And I think if we if we focus on the last part of that verse, uh, we do a lot better. We understand human depravity and who knows we would I think I think probably if I had been there and I'd been Jewish, uh, my culpability would have come out. Mm. I think probably in, in addition to the Roman Gentile military and the Jewish rejectors, leaders who cried, crucify him. I might've said the same thing. I don't know. I'd like to think not, but I probably would have. But what matters the most is what happens after this. It says in the same passage, Acts 2, but God, uh, which is a good uh, good thing to chase down in a concordance. Every time it says, but God, mm. you know that something good is probably going to happen. God raised him up, uh, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So if we don't get to the point of resurrection and a life to come that is far beyond anything we can imagine now, we can't live through of the sinful world. So human choices in the death of the Lord, yes. Redemption, uh, through the power of God, uh, there's that too. So in light of that, Greg, what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility when it comes to our response to the gospel? Well, now you've moved into the most difficult part of this whole discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we could take another, oh, probably three years talking about it. And many of us... Yeah. I spent a good bit of time on it, uh, and I hate to, to be redundant, but I think uh, the only answer to this is a both-and answer. Uh, it's the main question that we ask. Both sides of the equation seem to be given in the Bible. Uh, for God so loved the world, you know, that whoever believes, we have the whoever passages throughout the scriptures. Yeah. And we also have... Um, you know, passages that seem to indicate otherwise, like Acts 13, 45, which is often used. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, this message of salvation, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That's wonderful. But then it goes on to say, Luke does, as many as had been appointed to Mm. eternal believed. So that has kind of both sides of the coin there. Um, it's the doctrine of election and the free will of mankind. Um, 
yeah, I could go through a, a lot here. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. But I think you, ha- a, a careful student of the Bible, is going to realize once again that there are many passages and many terms that are used that seem to indicate an election that is apart from freedom of will. I don't think that's the case. We could define uh, election uh, as being, uh, I have it written down here, Hmm. eternal act of God, whereby he in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of people to be recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. That's a typical definition of election, which goes against, as I said, this apparently the freedom of choice that men have. But we can say this, just looking from the divine side of the um, equation, election is unconditional. I think we would agree upon that. That is, there's nothing in the creature that conditions God's choice. It is pre-temporal. That is, it's before the foundations of the world. And it is unmerited that is of pure grace, which becomes the basis of salvation. And yet those who acknowledge this view also say that election is in Christ, but it means that he's the ground and the cause and the guarantee of, of the election. So all of that is great theological stuff. And, and uh, many times there's an attempt to weaken the understanding of election. And I understand this. Usually it's based upon foresight, Uh, The idea that God sees down the corridors of time and he knows who's going to respond to his grace. There's no relationship until that person believes. A proper view of election, in my view, is that there's something, something happened before the foundations of the world. There's an omniscience that has to do with the actual and the possible results of, of something in the future. And there is a design uh, in which a plan has been put together, like an architect. Mm-hmm. He, no, he not only puts together the plan, he draws it out before anything begins. He may even have a construction crew hired. And yet, he knows what the end product is going to be. And he's chosen those who are going to work in the project. And yet, in some way there's going to be negligence on the part of those who are chosen. Mm. Uh, there, there are going to be deaths, but is the architect responsible for the death in the project? No, it's usually because of, um, of the way, um, you know, unsafe working conditions or mistakes that are made. That's probably a poor illustration, but it helps me to think through the fact that there was a plan in place and that's part of the election. So all of these words like election and predestination, which means a, a preconceived plan, um, it usually is a, a reference to um, uh, how, what God is going to do with us individually. He's going to give us a, an inheritance uh, and things such as that. But uh, it's, it's also uh, used of the death of Messiah, as we just talked about in the previous question. Um In the book of Acts, it says in chapter four, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand 
and your purposes predestined to occur. And that's the word proorizo, which means a preconceived plan. So it's not just looking down the, the corridors of time. It's a for personal knowledge. So um, I know that's on the side of election. You know, there's one other thing I'd like to add, if I may. Sure. You can use it if you like. But a concept that helped me a great deal is a uh, it's actually a scientific concept called antinomy. Mm. I had heard about it before. It's the idea that there are two um, bodies of literature that or two truths, two principles that simply cannot be put together. But each one is true in its own uh, uh, area. I had um, the uh, chairman of the Department of Physics, who was one of my elders at a church in Lubbock, Texas, uh, at Texas Tech University. And I used to, I asked him, well, is, is there any truth to this? He was a professor of physics and optics. And he says, absolutely. Light, for example, can be described as waves, mm. but light can also be described as particles. Mm -hmm. If light is waves, then light cannot be particles and vice versa. And we call this an antinomy. It one law goes against the other law, antinomos. And he said, we operate under that principle. There's a body of literature related to light being described as particles. And there's a body of literature that describes light as waves. But the two cannot go together logically. And so it's another example of how God's mysterious theology is impossible to reconcile reconcile in our minds, but we still operate. We're so thankful for the election of God. You know, we we go through that door that says, whosoever will, and we get on the inside, we look back on the inside of the door, it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. Mm. And um, so that's so comforting to us. And yet on the other hand, we recognize our responsibility to make right decisions and to share the gospel, because we have no idea about uh, the upper story. He's in charge of that, not me. Mm. So I don't know. That's that's comforting to me to know that uh, we're not supposed to be able to understand some things. We just do our best. Yeah, I think as I get older, I'm learning to be more comfortable with uncertainty and with mystery. So I appreciate that analogy. Thank you so much, Greg. As we wrap up this episode, I feel a sense of, I would say, responsibility. I thought of the parable of the talents as you were talking and the idea that the master has three servants and he gives each of them a certain amount of talents and then he goes away for a while. And then it's up to the servants what they're going to do with the talents. And then he's going to return again and he's going to assess what the servants did. As a believer, I feel a greater sense of responsibility to make sure that I steward what God has entrusted to me until Jesus returns. And so how would you say our view of God's sovereignty can shape how we approach decision-making, especially now in our lives as we near the time of Jesus' return? Well, the time is, is certainly short. <clears throat> and so we need to make the best of the time that we have left. Francis Schaeffer used to say, it's only now that we can make decisions in heaven, we will not have the opportunity to make decisions. Mm. And our decisions now will result in either reward or uh, 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 chastisement, perhaps, for not doing what we should have done. 
So I don't want to reach the end of my uh, earthly life and and say woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, I want to uh, do all that I can for him. But I also think the flip side of that, Nicole, for me, is that I never have thought that Jesus is so concerned about how much I accomplish mm. or about who I, uh, for you, who I marry or, or about what job I take. I think he's more concerned about my heart attitude toward him and more concerned about the fruit of the spirit than the accomplishments of the flesh. That's for sure. Mm. So I think he wants us to relax and yet be busy. How do those two go together? Not very well. But I just, uh, so so many Christians, I, I get the impression that they see Jesus as running down the street with his toga flapping in the wind and biting on his fingernails trying to get to the next, next appointment to do more. Mm. And I, I don't think he wants us to have that attitude. We should have a relaxed mental attitude while we are diligently doing all that he puts before us to do until we can't. And sometimes we can't from sickness or this or that or the other. Uh, so <clears throat> I don't know. I, th I think I'd rather be in a comfortable mode with God as I normally am, uh, but still be working, doing whatever I can. God's sovereignty is a complicated topic, and there is a lot we simply do not understand about how and why God works. In summary, God has authority over everything in the universe. At the same time, people have choices and responsibility. These two statements are not contradictory, but rather work together. Though we cannot always fathom what the reconciliation of these two views looks like, we can find encouragement in remembering because God is our sovereign, loving Father, He will fulfill all His promises to Israel and to those who believe in Jesus. We leave you with Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or a rating on Spotify. Let us know how this podcast has moved you. We would also love for you to share it on social media with your friends and family. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope, featuring Dr. Greg Haig. This episode was produced by Nicole Vaca and Grace Sweet, written by Rachel Larson, and edited by John Bautista. This episode was also created thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Fernando Mercado, Kyron Bautista, Nathan Scherer, Samantha Rodbell, and Robert Walter. I'm Nicole Vaca. Until next time.